Hello and welcome to The Figure with me, Georgia Parkin. And me, Charlotte Lorimer. And today's episode is uh, a special one because it actually will be our final episode of The Figure. I think we've decided that the podcast has come to a natural end in its current form. And that's not to say that we won't potentially do another podcast in the future or something else together in the future. I'm sure there'll be many, many things um, that we will do together uh, as we love doing this collaboration and have done since 2018. And obviously a lot has changed since then. We were about 22 or 23 when we started and it feels like that chapter has come to a close. Yes. And should we just start by going back to what we intended to do with this, where we were when we came up with all the ideas for it. I love that you're sitting in the same dining room that we recorded all of our early episodes in. Our first episode took us, what, like six, seven recordings. Absolutely. We, and we did it every week um, whilst working <laughs> five days in an office. <laughs> Yeah, no such thing as remote working back in those days. No, anyway. I couldn't dream of it, actually. And we came up with the idea. I was travelling after university. I was in Sydney and I had the idea. And then I pitched it to Georgia, who came come up with the initial idea of doing a podcast together. And then we were in Bali together and we were mm. on that beach in... Was it? It wasn't Lombok. One of the Gilly. No, it was where the Noosa, Noosa something. Was it after that really awful speed ferry that I've really hated? <laughs> I think it was before the ferry. It wasn't oh, right. That was like a kind of fishing boat. It was before the fishing boat. Did I tell the story that I peed on myself in that ferry because the toilet didn't drain properly? Like you literally just pee, and then I was like, oh, that feels like fluid and it was just because it was a hole <laughs> it wasn't very fun <laughs> when we got off at gilly tea i've never seen anyone to be so relieved to get back onto dry land or as i just saw it as an adventure i was having a great time feels like a different life ago yeah it does and i think that's why this is you know come to a natural end now is because well I think we've you know over the last several years we've both entered different lives but particularly now in 2023 and yeah it's it's just it's it's different so shall we begin with this month's recommendations or what have you been enjoying this month I have a particular revelation of a particular film that I watched that I'm very keen to share because you have shared it so far with every single person that you can come across. So I have, yes. the listeners should not be excluded from that. So I'm very late to the game, but I watched a film uh, called Call Me By Your Name, which came out years ago, probably before this podcast even started. Um, and I knew it was going to be an emotional film. I knew the premise of it being a love story. And I just find very hard hitting emotional stories, just very difficult. I'd rather just not watch them because I know that I'll feel sad. This film hit me on another level, but essentially it's a, it's a, it is a love story between 
two characters set in the 80s in northern Italy, absolutely beautiful music and beautiful scenery. And they just, they capture this subconscious longing and connection very well. And actually, sometimes when you first meet a person that you fall in love with or you're falling in love for the first time, you don't always necessarily get on with them very well. And actually, they they I think that's quite impressive in the first half is you, you can't quite put your finger on how, where these characters are. And then it sort of, it escalates from there and... I think it's quite politically, you know, politically important film because it actually both characters are male within the 80s that was absolutely not allowed. So it's sort of a forbidden love story. And then you follow their journey through that. So I absolutely loved, loved, loved that film. And I hope that, actually, do I hope there's a, a, I've been saying this a lot that I hope that there's another film because I think for me, selfishly, I want to see the characters um again but p- perhaps that shouldn't be the case who knows well, I think it's one of those films where the ending is so beautiful and so tragic and not what you want at all but it's perfect and if they tried to extend it beyond that it would just ruin everything you know another Char- example of this of that film or mm-hmm. that genre have you seen Before Sunset yes Yes, that's so true. That's an amazing film. It's basically, for anyone who hasn't seen it, that is another unexpected love story, very kind of young and carefree and having an adventure in a new city, which is Vienna. And it is pretty much solid dialogue for the whole film. And you are so engaged. It's like you're a little person being carried around in their pocket and you get to hear everything and hear them kind of falling in love with each other. But in the space of 24 hours, it is an extraordinary film. Really recommend that. I would also recommend on a completely different <laughs> note. Um, <laughs> yes, Clarkson's Farm. Lots of people have recommended this to me. And it is a good exercise in separating the art from the artist and holding multiple views at once, which is Jeremy Clarkson has said some absolutely disgusting things about people which are inexcusable. And at the same time, he has shone a light on farming in a way that was really, really needed and produced something that's incredibly entertaining and very educational, actually. And I just absolutely love watching that series. There's two so far. I hope there'll be a third one. And it just makes me laugh. It makes me roll my eyes at stupid bureaucracy and policy and and just look up to all the people who put food on our tables in what they do and how precarious that life can be and is getting more precarious. Just think mm. it's a fantastic series. And the other series I've been watching, which I think is also, that's another one that was made quite a while ago. My friend Sarah recommended it. It's called W1A and it's a mockumentary about and by the BBC who have basically made a series which is completely taking the piss out of themselves. (laughs) I don't know how this got through because it's outrageous and so funny and it's basically a lot of kind of office chat and a lot of um, office politics. It centres on the character played by Hugh Bonneville, who is the head of values. 
but we don't really know, and neither do <laughs> we, by the sounds of it, what the head of value is meant to do. Is he valuing the BBC from a financial perspective? Is he working out what values the BBC has? Is he working out the value of the BBC for the British public? Who knows? And he arrives every day on his Brompton bike and doesn't know how to fold it up. And it's just absolutely classic British, very easy to watch humour. Another series that I enjoyed was... Well, actually, it was a documentary called Finding Michael. It is the story of um, Spencer Matthews retracing his brother's steps in Everest to try and find his body because he disappeared there in his trek 20 years ago. He was the youngest Brit to summit Mount Everest um, and he never came home. So it follows the story um, and it's very emotional, as you can imagine. But what's really great about it is it shows you all of the different stages of the climb and I found it really interesting and inspiring. I also would recommend um, Slow Horses. Slow Horses is on Apple TV and it's a very funny TV series. It's basically the kind of brunt of the MI5 and it's either people who have fucked up or uh, not made it and they like get shafted off into this random office and get up to all sorts of interesting dilemmas and end up being involved in quite a big case. Um, and Gary Oldman plays the kind of head of that uh, department and he's really great in it. So that's really good. And then in terms of podcasts, uh, The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, I discovered a couple of weeks ago. And this is a series where... J.K. Rowling sits down with a journalist from the Free Press um, and she takes you through not just the most recent criticism of all of her comments on the trans debate, but all of the criticism about Harry Potter, all of the early fandom, why Harry Potter was so successful, but also what was happening in her personal life at the time. And it's really interesting hearing from her directly, responding to everything, because there's a lot being said about her. And I think it's brought up in conversation, I would say at least like once or twice a week, I hear a reference to it. So this is a really great series to listen to the whole story. How have you found it, Shah? I find it incredibly refreshing to hear a primary source in that it's J.K. Rowling speaking about her own life and her own reactions to what happened with the fame of the book, the backlash, particularly in certain Christian communities against it in the 90s. And I haven't got as far as the more recent controversy, but I like the long form of it. And it is an incredibly well-produced podcast, similar to the podcast about Britney by Pandora Sykes, in that they have the these primary conversations and interviews that they come back to interspersed with other audio recordings that give you further context. And I just think that it's very topical, very timely and I'd really recommend that people have a listen regardless of how you feel about everything that's happened because I think that going to the person who 
it's all about and hearing from them is always valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and I'm, I'm curious as well to see, obviously it's just come out. So it's, it's, we're listening to it in real time. It's coming, it comes out every week, but I'm curious to see over time how that will might change the conversation or uh, lead to further conversation around her. I would also recommend another very well-produced podcast, which is actually a BBC Sounds podcast called 28-ish Days. And it is 15-minute episodes, 28 of them, each of them focusing on a different day within the average woman's cycle. And it's obviously called 28-ish Days because not very many women actually have that as the length of their menstrual cycle. And it is fascinating and so enlightening and also makes you a bit horrified at how little you knew even if you did you know biology to a high level at school or have done your own independent research I mean I've read several books about things not only the like biological aspect of it but also the political like politics around it so Emma Barnett has a really good book called period uh, Maisie Hill's book called period power is more from a kind of how to look at your own body and your own symptoms and what might relieve pain for you or make things easier like how to think about it and this podcast is absolutely essential listening it's just so Mm. good and you think gosh how do they have 15 to 20 minutes of things to say uh, per day of the cycle but it's again it's very well produced in that it's sort of it takes you through but it adds in little bits so say oh this is what's happening on this day but did you know that later in life or this is what happens in menopause and this is the bit of the cycle that shifts and it links it it's all very well connected Mm. or if there's some kind of condition which is related to an imbalance of the hormones that are involved in the menstrual cycle it will go into detail in that and how it can be diagnosed usually it takes years and it's just calling out a lot of problems that there have been around women's health and it not and all the myths around it and Mm -hmm. people believing that that women's wombs floated around in their bodies yeah true gosh that's Um, it's just really well done and it was my godmother sarah who recommended that and i've been recommending it since to lots of people and my final recommendation is a book called darling by india knight which was given to me at christmas and I hadn't read a very good book after the one I had read by Dolly Alderton and I've actually left it. What's your, what are your views on leaving books? If you don't like them very much, you're not getting into it. I think why not? Yeah. Yeah. I I think don't, don't, I mean, sometimes it's a question of persisting. Um, I found that with the Testaments by Margaret Atwood, actually, I put it down, picked it up, put it down, picked it up. And then I got to a point in the middle and then devoured the rest of it. So sometimes that happens, but, you know. Yeah, I was wondering if that was going to happen with the book that I've just abandoned, but I got more than 100 pages in and I thought, you know what, I've done my part now. This is not doing it for me. (laughs) So I moved on. And this book, from the first paragraph, I was absolutely enthralled and enchanted and I absolutely love it. I've gone from avoiding reading before I go to bed and being like no that's not what I feel like doing to 
without fail, always reading a couple of pages. The characters are wonderful. Not very much has happened, really. I just love the writing. I love the characters. Everybody is very real to me. And um, I don't know how it will pan out because I'm still very early on, but I'm already recommending it because I love it so much. That's a good feeling. The first figure for this episode is Marcus Aurelius. And Marcus Aurelius is probably best known, well, for a few things, namely for being a Roman emperor between the years of 161 to 180 AD. But he is also probably one of the most famous Stoic philosophers and author of Meditations, which actually was a piece of writing that he never intended for anybody to read. So it actually didn't really have an official title. Um, It's just referred to as Meditations quite often as titles for different essays within his writing. And it was actually originally written in Greek because I didn't know this, but at the time, people who are the sort of elite in the kind of Roman Empire spoke Greek and wrote in Greek. There's a very famous quote, which is about the captive capturing its conqueror in that Greece was captured within the Roman Empire and then went on to influence art, culture, language, philosophy. Absolutely. And Marcus Aurelius is um, an interesting figure, I think, because he, and and that's a funny personal uh, kind of connection, was that I discovered Stoicism in the first phase of the pandemic. And he... How did you discover it, Georgia? Let's hear the story. (laughs) So the reason I discovered Stoicism is because Arthur, who I was living with in Grantham at the time, was going through a Stoicism phase, which involved waking up every morning at 6am and reading a passage of the Daily Stoic, reflecting on that, writing down his thoughts and feelings, um, and then we would discuss it together. And he, this was obviously quite a personal journey for him because he is not a morning person or uh, had never really journaled uh, formally before. So I read a lot of Stoic uh, philosophy in that time. And I once joined you for a little Zoom session one morning. You did. We you didn't did do Stoic though. We did a Russian novel section. Did we do Dostoevsky? Yes, we did. <laughs> yeah, yes, he was also reading that. And also nonviolent communication. He is actually a young person. He sounds like an old professor. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing that went along with this, while I was listening to the In Our Time podcast, which that's such a great programme. I love it's actually a radio program rather than a podcast, but it's obviously you can consume it as a podcast if you want to on Marcus Aurelius and they were talking about how he slept on the floor until people told him that that was not appropriate as emperor and I obviously couldn't help but think of you in Grantham with your (laughs) daily stoic habit and your floor futon. Yes I was sleeping on the floor um (laughs) this is true. Not anymore. Not anymore and um and, and interestingly um and I and I we used to think about this whenever a Marcus Aurelius passage came up because he was leading the Roman Empire through the worst plague that 
ravaged the Roman Empire. It was the worst one that they had. It killed so many people. And he has been often referred to or compared to someone like Churchill, who led in a specific way, which is that he didn't leave Rome. All of the sort of wealthy and well-to-do Romans did, and he stayed until the bitter end and caught the plague and died of that plague himself. So I just, I thought that was interesting and an interesting time to have discovered it myself. And what I was interested to find out about him was, you know, why was this man who, especially in 161 AD, who was the emperor, why was he able to sleep on the floor and think and lead a life that sort of, he almost was sort of, I guess, trying to lead by example and not get caught up in his power and his money and his sort of influence. And I just thought, sort of interesting when you think about leadership and you think about not only just that but also how relevant all of his writing is today but I suppose that is what makes someone a classicist as it were that it's lasted all of this time and that we still are referring to it now. How do you think he'd feel if he knew that all of that had been published? I don't think he ever intended for anyone to read it. Yeah it's just interesting to reflect on, I think, that Absolutely. something that was not done intentionally can have such a long-lived impact. Hmm. Actually, it's just reminded me, Arthur, a year later, wanted us to do a podcast together, which perhaps we will, but it's about the idea of memento mori, because Arthur really focused on this quote in particular, which is memento mori, which I actually learned from a series of unfortunate events, but it means someday you will die which means that sort of everything that you do, you know, whether it's that you have a million followers, whether it's you have lots of money, whether something terrible happens to you, that someday you will die and none of it, none of that matters. And if you live by that philosophy, how would that change how you view your life and how you carry out your life? And that very much relates to the idea of stoicism, which we've spoken about before on the podcast, because I think there's a big misunderstanding around it in that if somebody had described someone as stoic, I would think stiff upper lip, not connected to their emotions, being a bit brutal, possibly, and like really stiff and rigid and disconnected from everything. And having talked to you and Arthur, and it's really stuck with me because I do think about it quite a lot, (laughs) uh, now understand that the term stoicism comes from the idea of sitting on a patio and watching the world go by and being in the present moment accepting your circumstances choosing how to respond to those circumstances and that I think is why it's still spoken about and studied practiced by various people today Mm. and I guess it's a lot to do with mindfulness, really, isn't it? Which is now the word that people talk about all the time. But it's Mm. existed in a form for thousands of years. Absolutely. And and not just watching as things happen to you, but actually leaning into them and Mm. understanding that they're happening and I'm going to I'm going to actually be happy that these things are happening and I'm going to be in control of how I react to something and not let it control me. In the meditations, Marcus Aurelius writes, harmonize yourself to the circumstances which you are allotted and love the men with whom you share the circumstances. Yeah. 
so fun fact about Marcus Aurelius when I think of emperors or kings I think I think about all of the kind of illegitimate sons that probably happened in that vibe because you know the crown passes on to the son regardless of who the son is but actually Roman emperors if they did not have any children which was the case for Marcus Aurelius's predecessors Hadrian was thought to have been gay so he didn't have any sons and he adopted and they went through this process of adopting someone who was sort of within their sphere of influence and someone who they thought would be a great leader and actually Hadrian identified Marcus Aurelius as somebody who he thought would be a brilliant leader and convinced his adopted son Antonius Pius to adopt Marcus Aurelius as his adopted son so when Antonius Pius died that Marcus Aurelius would become emperor and interestingly Marcus Aurelius's son was an awful leader and I was listening to I think it was Joe Rogan I think it was the author of the Daily Stoic was on Joe Rogan and they had this kind of side conversation about kind of inspired by the character of Joffrey from Game of Thrones why some of the greatest men or greatest leaders have awful sons um and then I think one of them just said well they didn't have any time to raise them um because they were being these sort of great leaders but that's an interesting pattern that I thought was and it's growing up with huge expectations lots of things that people may believe you could or should inherit but you may not have I think a rebellious aspect of pushing back against that Mm. I think that's really fascinating I quite like to listen to that episode Mm. and also and also just growing up in completely different circumstances to your father if your father is really great or really successful you're not going to have the same childhood or maybe and and obviously those early elements of your environment are why you become successful there's also a lot of thought and debate about was he kind of a stoic or that way inclined because he suffered so much tragedy I think he and his wife he married Faustina who was the sister of Antonius Pius so that was a very kind of made a lot of sense in terms of that union keeping the family close um and they lost seven children I think they had 11 but lost seven which even for that time was a lot so there is some comment as to whether maybe that's sort of how he dealt with it or perhaps it was just actually he was someone who captured all of these thoughts and thank goodness that we found them and that's sort of part of early stoic philosophy there was also a discussion on the in our time program around whether what he wrote was philosophy or more things that he'd learned about himself, reflected upon, written down, and then had been maybe subsequently linked to Stoicism. And that I found made me think about things, especially because he's called the philosopher king often. Mm. And yeah, like what is a philosophy? And does it have to have its own established form or structure? Or, or can it just be 
the thoughts of one individual person that then people read attach themselves to try and follow Mm. was that was that a reflection from discourses no from biopithecus because they because he talks about that like what is philosophy and I feel like that's if I think about that too much that's almost too meta for my brain to comprehend that (laughs) (laughs) that philosophers are debating what philosophy is even though they are are they creating it are they writing it down I guess that's what the point I don't know our second figure for today is that 43% of women leaders are burnt out compared to only 31% of men at their level and this is from a study that took place between 2015 and 2022 over 810 companies participated in the study and more than 400,000 people were surveyed what Mm. were your first thoughts when you looked at this figure were you surprised no and I think it makes sense given through the pandemic there was really a kind of light shone on what actually goes on at home and when we had everyone trying to work from home trying to do childcare, trying to do homeschooling um it almost like the whole situation just blew up in flames and it was it was sort of a bit of a reckoning to go okay whatever's going on is clearly not working in the sense of like balancing all of this is actually coming down to predominantly female carers and um when I was listening to a podcast that McKinsey made about it just after the kind of everything was published on average they found from all of their analysis that women were doing kind of five four or five extra hours a day of work on top of their jobs full-time so well, they define work as kind of picking up children from school or mm-hmm. doing laundry or planning meals everything okay yeah. and keeping up and all of that so that so so I think that is a big element of this sort of and that's been growing for years I think in terms of female leadership whether we're looking at looking at it from women who are like at entry level right up to leaders of countries there's that element that's going on that we're not looking at care equally now I actually think that the the picture is is clearer and probably better now than it was even three years ago before the pandemic but in answer to your question sorry that was a very long-winded one but no I wasn't surprised what do you make of the concept and term emotional labor my view on this has always been that as a female or as the mum in the household because of your gender you're more likely to be expected to and historically are more likely maybe to have had a lower and I'm generalizing a lot here but more likely to have had a lower salary potentially or work part-time or and that you're just you have all of those extra things that need to be thought about whether it's what PE kit to go in school today who's picking up this person what are we going to cook how are we going to manage this household like they're managing their own business being the household as well as going to work and I think maybe the pandemic also just the increased conversations we've had around 
flexible working and joint parenting and you know campaigns like pregnant then screwed and we're actually going right care needs to be undertaken by both parents and my view on this was always well we can't do that if we don't have government funded childcare because that means that there's always going to be somebody who is going to either have to step back from work or who um, there's not going to be equal opportunity for either party to be able to go back to work now that's not saying that I think that mums should go back to work full time or dads should go back to work full time, but there's not really the option because there isn't childcare that is provided. So you don't really have a choice and therefore you have to make all of these kind of decisions and sacrifices. And within the last couple of weeks, as of the most recent budget, um, that is something that the government will be rolling out as of 2025 as a way of getting many people back into the workplace, which is fantastic so in England and Wales yeah to hear about Scotland and I'm sure Nicola Sturgeon would have had a lot to say on that uh had she still been leading the country one thing on emotional labour before we talk about some of the big resignations that have happened in line with this idea of burnout and women leaders leading a country I think with emotional labour the thing that I hadn't considered until it started being talked about more was not just the number of hours that you put in doing something around the house or organizing people it's the holding lots of things in your head in that I don't have children but I do have responsibilities and my brother should technically have equal responsibilities but he's not thinking about all these different elements when we were living together that I am and I've seen it in lots of families where they're a young woman will take on this role of like planning family gatherings, checking in on that person, making sure that that thing arrives on time or whatever it is. And I think it actually starts from a really young age and it is about having a lot in your head as well as everything else that can wear you down. And I thought it was very funny when I think listeners of the rest of his politics talked about domestic duties within the Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart households. And they gave very honest answers, to be fair to them, but they did not come off very well in terms of what they do to help with the house and, in Mm -hmm. Rory Stewart's case, young children. And Alistair Campbell came back on this and he said, well, I've committed to doing one thing, which is asking his wife, Fiona, how he can help. But my problem with that is that then his wife, Fiona, has to think of something that she can do to delegate. So it's less about that and it's more about being taking the initiative and taking some of that thought load. Yeah. Coming back to Nicola Sturgeon, I think that we've had two very, in some ways, unexpected resignations from women leaders who were well-respected as politicians, namely Jacinda Ardern and Nicola Sturgeon, within a couple of months of each other, and their resignation speeches had parallels. They have both been women leaders throughout the whole of the pandemic. Jacinda Ardern also had the Christchurch terror attacks to guide the country through in the aftermath of that. And I, with Nicola Sturgeon, I didn't agree with her drive towards independence, but I admired her passion for Scotland as a country and her 
ability to speak with clarity and poise. What were your thoughts on those two leaders and and why they've stepped back and and the way that that's been communicated in the media compared to how male Mm. leaders and their resignations would be communicated? I think there's definitely an element of vulnerability and kind of openness that you see in both of those speeches that people go, oh, yeah, I can totally relate to that. And um, I think it's a really good example for all leaders, male or female. I also wonder if men feel like they can't do that in the same way, which obviously they should feel like they can. But, you know, there's that debate whether it's men actually don't feel like they have the capacity to even admit that they are struggling or is it that not only do female leaders are leading a country but maybe they have you know their own family emotional labor to think about with just well. Arden, what, so she was the second woman in modern history to give birth while in power and so she has a very active role with as a mother of young children on top of everything else but the other thing that I was talking to my friend Eleanor about who is from New Zealand and was there during the pandemic, is that Jacinda Ardern's predecessor did almost exactly the same thing in that he resigned just around the same time, coming up to the next possible election for the third run and stepped mm-hmm. down. He didn't talk about the idea of like not having enough left in the tank to do the job justice, but he certainly had difficulties that he'd led the country through and that it was throughout the 2008 financial crisis. So I do wonder if there's an element of that, of there's more vulnerability with women in the way that they talk and express themselves. And hopefully that is getting better, not only for women, Mm. but for men as well. Mm. There's also two more, two things, which is that's that's reminded me as well of is that firstly, um, one of the other female leaders that I've sort of had my eye on recently because of those photos and videos that came out, was the Finnish Prime Minister, Sanna Marin, who was photographed at the party, what, drinking, sitting on the lap of someone, partying, I suppose. And the speech that she gave afterwards was quite heartbreaking to see that, to show, like, what... Because that's how you must feel after something like that comes out, when your privacy is violated and people are saying these things about you, questioning your leadership, blah, blah, blah. They put some very like sexy, sultry-looking photos of her on the front page. Obviously, male leaders, for since the beginning of time, have in, been involved in countless partying and um, activities that are probably not um, honourable or great. Um, but she came out and very much addressed it and took ownership and accountability for it, which was great. But I also felt like she had far more criticism because she was female. Yeah, and actually, Cinder Arden when they were looking at the number of mentions that people receive online. This was a three-year study. Most figures received in politics about 400 mentions over the three-year period. She was mentioned 18,000 times, and she was the target in nine out of 10 posts. Like This was online hate at a completely unprecedented level. And that is another element that, sadly, in still today, women are the victims of much more absolutely this is a random tangent actually but I was just listening to a podcast today with deliciously Ella and she was on the podcast working hard or hardly working by Grace Beverly and she was telling about how you know there was a point in time where she was literally Britain's number one hated 
uh, person that got compared to Donald Trump, um, was trolled, ex you know, extraordinarily. And the host made this point of, do we think if a male uh, author had come out and said they had a chronic illness, that they would have gotten the same amount of hate that you did by suggesting a potential way of curing that chronic illness? Um, and I thought that was very poignant. That's been kind of in the back of my mind all day because I actually don't think that that would be the case at all if they were, you know. So there were so many double standards that are present here. I think there was also an interesting, I think I spoke to you about this at the time, but I was I was reading a few articles at the time of Jacinda Ardern's resignation that the leaders who led zero COVID policy through COVID, which Jacinda Ardern did, Nicola Sturgeon did, have... I think, yeah, a prime minister in Australia um, have all resigned. That was obviously, in hindsight, an unsuccessful policy in the sense of people feeling like their freedoms were inhibited, their quality of life was inhibited. All sorts of other things were negatively affected, even though their COVID deaths were low. Um, and I thought that was interesting and, and fair to put into this conversation but but interestingly that both those leaders were the ones that chose zero covid policies and they were female and i think that they took a huge amount of ownership over those decisions as well it didn't really feel so much like the load of that decision was spread out between multiple people they were very much the figurehead for that policy mm. and mm. i think that also must have taken its toll Absolutely. On burnout, then, let's finish mm. on a more positive note or a more kind of uh, advice or tips-led yes. note. Yes. What would you recommend people do or try if they feel like they are getting to the point where they could feel burnt out or if they are burnt out? What do you do? I would, I would quickly, just before I answer that, I would also say I think one of another reason why women get burnt out, and especially women of colour or and uh, an ethnic minority is that you're you also feel like sometimes in the workplace that you are doing more work um, just to prove yourself or prove a point um, again particularly women who are not white um, and that's why burnout can feel can happen really quite quickly um, and I was reading about this in the McKinsey research and they all say you know women are far more likely to to not just support other women's careers, but like sponsor their career, open opportunities, push them into situations where they are going to be visible and give them credit. And when asking male leaders to do the same, often male leaders, they've, they've said in this research, feel like, oh, I, I don't think I'm the right person to sort of sponsor this person, this woman of colour, for example, because I can't relate in, in that way. I'm not a mom. I'm not someone who's, you know, from Southeast Asia. And actually they're saying, no, do it. Um, because that's actually how you're going to prevent that feeling that um, there's a ceiling. And there is. There have been a lot of, there's been a lot of progress in terms of C-suite positions. But actually, in that first promotion to manager and that kind of middle management area, there's still a huge discrepancy. I think it was like 82 out of 100, 82 women to 100 men, which is a significant amount. This is a significant difference. So what I would say in terms of burnout, I was at an International Women's Day talk with our permanent secretary, who is basically like this sort of civil servant CEO of a department. So this civil servant CEO of levelling up is a woman called Sarah Healy. And she 
in her opening speech when she was made permanent secretary a couple of months ago she took over from her predecessor she made it very clear that she had had three children and what her journey had been to get to that point and the piece of advice that she gave were very specific one she said have flexible childcare, and she said this is a big problem now because actually it was not as excruciatingly excruciatingly as expensive as it is now and when I was younger it, it was really possible to have flexible childcare. but she made that point of it being flexible um the second thing she said was make a decision about what you're going to do in terms of your routine and balance and you know who's looking after children or, or whatever and stick to it and reassess at six months or reassess in three months don't put yourself in a prison of thinking about it all day every day so that's what I would say and then in terms of burnout I think it's really important to analyze what it is specifically that is burning you out right you've got to be able to go right what is it specifically is it my home life is it my role is it my manager is it is it the workload and really kind of narrow it down so that you can come up with an action plan the third figure today is a collection of illustrations for Roald Dahl's books done by Quentin Blake. And the reason that we wanted to talk about this is because of the discussions that have involved the edits made by Puffin, the publisher of Roald Dahl's books, lots of which have centred on removing certain words that sensitivity readers, a new concept, hadn't come across them before this story, have identified as being potentially offensive to groups of people. Lots of people have responded to these edits as though they are censorship. Some people have welcomed them. It has sparked huge debate, which has ultimately ended in Puffin saying that they will publish the original unedited versions as a classic edition. And then the edited versions will also be available and I, when I say edited that probably sounds like it's too heavy-handed there have been lots of small changes made all in one go but they aren't it isn't like they've rewritten things although lots of people would argue that some of the changes they've made have changed the character or been unnecessary so for example the, P the BFG who is in his black cloak at night time, so is therefore camouflaged with the night with his black cloak, is now no longer wearing a black cloak. He's just wearing a cloak. That kind of thing, which is, I imagine, related to race in terms of why they removed the word black, is like overkill and makes no sense to me. No, true. I think this is why there's such a debate about it, because there's though that example. Then there's also the example of aren't they changing like Augustus Gloop to from fat to enormous enormous um which i can see some merit to right like i can i can see that you don't want children calling someone fat or learning that word or using it in a way that's kind of ridiculing them but although with the case of augustus gloop there is a greed element to his character mm -hmm. Yeah, and changing it from enormously fat to enormous does it make that much difference? It's a funny one. I just feel like that's again. I wasn't that on board with that sort of change, mainly because of it being related to the character so much. If it's mm. an unnecessary detail where the defining characteristic of that person in the book is not there, 
guzzling of chocolate, then like fine. Other, mm. There were some changes where I thought, yeah, okay, I think that is absolutely fine and, and actually a positive thing. So for example, in the twits, there is a phrase weird African language. I think that what he means by that is unfamiliar African mm. language. They've taken out the word weird. No problem with that at all. But there are some which I just don't understand where they've sort of turned things into something about like black and white and race when it's not that for me. So for example, in James and the Giant Peach, going white as a sheet is now looking terrified. Which is not as visual either. So I mean, the whole idea no. of colour is draining out of your face. You're feeling faint, yeah. Yeah. My huge objection ones are... Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Willy Wonka is a weird man, and he is not meant to be a perfect, admirable character. And he takes all of the Oompa Loompas. So this is the original version of that Roald Dahl wrote. So I ship them all over here, every man, woman, and child in the Oompa Loompa tribe. This has been changed too. So they all agreed to come over, each and every Oompa Loompa. And look, I know it's problematic that all the Oompa Loompas were taken not necessarily with their own consent, but that's changing the character of Willy Wonka, who was not a very nice man all the time. Yeah, he has slaves, like that's what yes. who they are. Yes. And by yeah. him, he, it's not that Roald Dahl, who obviously had his own problematic views, he was hugely anti-Semitic. He's not expressing that this is okay. He's building a character who mm. has some things that are extraordinary and he's this creative man who's sort of done wonderful things with chocolate and sweets and that whole world for children but he's also very isolated he's quite cruel and he doesn't seem to care that all of these children that he's invited to his factory sort of one by one are picked off and slowly injured it's things like that where you just think no I know that it's politically correct for you to change that so to speak but you've changed it too much there and yeah. yeah, I think I think it's 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 a it's an interesting one. I think broadly, I am not for editing the story. I think overall, that's my view. However, I can see that there's a benefit to it because you know we grew up with certain problematic phrases. We grew up with certain problematic ideology, and you know we're in this weird reckoning right now where we've got some extremely woke people and we've got some people who are very solidly against changing how we talk about things and I think we kind of can't have it both ways or I'm posing that as a controversial viewpoint can we have it both ways where we can say that we don't want to have these problematic views of children growing up but then let them read something that has that has viewpoints or things that are that possibly contribute to that fairy tales is also something that I was thinking about you know those have been tempered down I think that the ugly stepsisters literally chop off their toes with a carving knife in the original version of Cinderella and you know obviously that's not being uh, written about in the modern day telling of Cinderella because it's really really traumatizing and if we have children that might be reading this sort of literature and they're not being taught the context or they're not being sort of educated in the right way around it then that could be difficult that being said 
the point of Roald Dahl's book, but again, you can't get this nuance until you're an adult, but the point of Roald Dahl's books is they all are actually very dark. And the reason that they're very dark is he had a very tragic life in many ways and very lived through a very poignant time in history. So, but again, that's not really going to be given as context to a child. And interestingly, with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I'm sure you obviously know this, but he went to Tom's school and... The, the chocolate factory that was near t- Tom's and his school was Cadbury, which I thought was hilarious. And I know that because we also applied for funding for many years at Cadbury and they're all based in the Midlands. I didn't know that. Um, just to elaborate on some of the traumatic things that he experienced throughout his life, because I always knew that he had a very dark sense of humour. And I think that is partly that comes out in his stories. And I think that's partly what makes them so iconic and attractive is that children have a fascination with nastiness and and cruelty and this good and evil and that villain and what makes them do that and these extreme situations if you that's exactly as you said with fairy tales fairy tales are not nice and i think i was reading about the theory behind the popularity of things like this especially for children in that if children are read bedtime stories tucked up in the safety of their bed by their parents or guardians or a bigger brother or sister or cousin, aunt, uncle, grandparent, they can experience the kind of go out of their comfort zone through the story, but from a place of safety physically. And I think that has real value. And I don't think that watering any stories down it for children especially when it's done by the publisher and especially when it's done after the author has died is the right thing to do because those people reading the story can judge the situation and skip things, miss things out. I remember when I first read or listened to The Prisoner of Azkaban for the first time without my mum reading it to me, I was shocked. I was like, I don't remember any of this because she just skips over it. And I guess the the publisher's counter to that would be, well, these editions are for young readers who are reading it themselves. But if they're Mm. old enough to do that, I think not enough credit is given to children and their intelligence and their ability to make judgments, start conversations, question things. And I don't think that we should be cushioning and like putting cotton wool around that. I agree. I I agree. And that's part of the nuance that comes with adulthood and growing up and I agree like those things went over my head when I was reading Roald Dahl as a child you know George's Marvelous Medicine you're on the side of George the whole time because his grandmother is horrible and Miss Trunchbull is the definition of evil and you know the witches are terrifying and you you so get behind that character as a child you have that feeling as well of whatever difficult situation you might have, an annoying teacher at school or something maybe even darker in your own life that you can relate to, or it goes over your head and then you realise it later on and you think, oh, what a clever author. (laughs) Yes, just to elaborate on some of the things that happened to Roald Dahl, so I was going to talk about that. I He was born in 1916. His sister died of a burst appendix when he was nine and his father died weeks later of pneumonia. And there is this absolutely brilliant film called The Tale of the Curious Mouse, which came out last Christmas. It features Dawn French as Beatrix Potter and has all sorts of other fun people in it, um, including Bill Bailey. And it centres on this story that Roald Dahl, after this, these two deaths, 
asked to go to the Lake District because he wanted to meet and see Beatrix Potter and where she lived and the places that had inspired all of her wonderful stories. And so it follows Roald Dahl and his mother, who was Scandinavian, as they go up to the Lake District. She's very heavily pregnant with the unborn child of the now deceased father, which is just tragic. And it's it's just a beautiful film and it shows again the kind of like nastiness of Beatrix Potter that she didn't have any time for her publishers she didn't want to pander to their requests and considering everything that's happened now and people's response to these posthumous edits to Roald Dahl's work is very interesting because the message of that film which came out before all of this is that children can handle a lot more than we usually think they can. And it's important that you show those experiences and people triumphing and going through them in your work. And so this whole story is this publisher coming up from London and going, oh no, but we can't have the three blind mice with the carving knife. And they're trying to change the rhymes and come up with this like soft, fluffy alternative. And then Beatrix Potter bumps into Roald Dahl in her garden, who she's tried to chase and is describing as like a horrible little mouse or rat or whatever. And um, and then talks to him about what's happened and then comes back more strongly against the publisher and wins out and has her own version of it. And the other thing that I thought, again, in context of what's happened that was that struck me was in Roald Dahl's Desert Island Disc. He talks about how he prefers writing books rather than screenplays because nobody can screw around with them. <laughs> I know. I know. Gosh, that's telling, isn't it? I agree completely that we do need to give children kind of more credit for what they can handle. And I think there also is a fine line between, you know, how far does this go? Will it go to total censorship of anything that's bad? But then we also have to have the conversation around language like black, white, about race, about fat, thin, how we talk about round disability, potentially that came out with the Witches remake a few years ago as well, and how we portray, how we portray that. Um, so I think it's interesting. I think to be continued, I think this has brought up a lot of feelings for people across the board, not just with Roald Dahl. Mm. And I think it's really about that question of who gets to decide what is quote unquote mm. bad. And mm how much can we put our own sense of that onto something of the past? And I I watched Breakfast at Tiffany's recently and I liked the way that they handled the hugely problematic casting of a white man as Yunioshi, who's Japanese character. And they put a line at the very front of the film and they acknowledged that this was something that they saw as wrong. They also acknowledged that it was made in a certain year and that it did not represent the views of Paramount Pictures and I Mm. thought that was a very Mm. well-crafted nod and then you leave people to make their own judgments Mm. and I think that we can't take that ability away from children as well because Mm. otherwise what happens when they grow up Mm. and when they grow up they will realize that there is good and evil and there the world 
is nuanced and there have been very problematic things that have happened and it's sim- similar you know that's reminded me as well of about statues and issues around you know do we remember these figures or do we leave them there and we actually put the context around at the time that it was made and at the time this is what was acceptable and it's not necessarily it's not acceptable anymore but that's the thinking at the time exactly um, which is why I, I really like Ro- Philip Pullman's response to everything that's happened with Roald Dahl is that he said that if they are offensive, they should be allowed to fade away. Just let them go out of print. If they become less popular because of these offensive things in them, then let that happen and bring in more. Let's make more room for Mallory Blackman stories and all these wonderful children's authors who do explore much more diversity in their casting in their characters and their stories and their experiences let's make space and add in not remove Mm. yes I absolutely love that I also on just a separate note to Roald Dahl's life just generally I had no idea about his I just I did not know about his military career and I had no idea the extent of his time in the RAF and having to recover from terrible injury in Alexandria and I think that adds a context to his life and all of the sort of tragedy. He lost children, had a very terrible accident that happened to his wife, who was um, completely paralysed with a stroke. She was a very famous American actress, and so they were kind of an it couple at the time that they got together. She's the um, interior decorator, so to speak, um, in Breakfast at Tiffany's. What a great full circle. <laughs> and you, what's your favorite Roald Dahl book oh I, I was gonna ask that as well I think oh, George's Marvelous Medicine it's just fantastic it is good it is good <laughs> and my favorite film I think would be Matilda my favorite film is Matilda as well I also have very good memories of watching Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and James and the Giant Peach but I think Matilda's is up there because I think the film elevated the book so it, it I think it did more for me than the book in, in a set if, if you know like they read that film was done really well but my favorite book is Danny the Champion of the World because it was read to us by our teacher in year three or four and I just I have such a specific memory of we would just oh we would just be desperate to get to the end of the day so he could read us the next chapter of Danny the Champion of the World and we were hooked to it and then when we had to stop and go home we just said no we'll read the rest of the book and so that's why that's my favorite yeah I love that oh and now every time I see a pheasant I think of it as well so I have that yes wow that's brought back some memories (laughs) Um, just to finish on a couple of fun facts so Roald Dahl was actually discovered by C.S. Forrester, who is another novelist, who was commissioned by the Saturday Evening Post to do some interviews. And Roald Dahl was one of these people because he was part of the RAF or had been. And they went to lunch and C.S. Forrester ordered duck, which made taking notes and interviewing quite difficult. I think it was quite chewy. So Roald Dahl offered to write up his experiences and send it over to him. C.S. Forrester then sent this straight to the newspaper, did not change a word. And that was how he was first published. He then wrote his first book, which was called The Gremlins for Walt Disney. And he wrote the screenplay for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. No 
did he? Yeah. So there Great we are. Film. Fun fact. On... And that's you know, and that's something that I wouldn't want to ever get get rid of is the child catcher. That is, they are still the oh. most scary. And you know what? This has just come to me now, but I think that 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 awareness of like that stranger danger child catcher is is presented to children in a way that is very clever because mm. when you grow older you realize it, even more evil that happens to children and can happen to children but it's just a bang bang every child leaves that film going oh george my, my brother was when we went to see it in the theater he was so terrified of the child catcher who actually comes over the top of the audience in a net at the, in the theater but he just stood up and legged it and my mum had to kind of like go over everyone's seats to try and like chase after him because he was so scared he was just not going to sit in his seat fair enough <laughs> no. thank you so much for listening to this episode of the figure and for listening to all of our episodes I don't really know what to say. I know that this won't be the end. So it's sort of not the end. It's a goodbye in this format. It's an au revoir. <laughs> and I want to say a big thank you to you for this idea in the first place and then taking all the ideas that I had and making it into what it's become and always showing up and having interesting questions, fun facts, devil's advocate. Oh, sure. and to you for just powering through. And often when I've sort of lacked motivation, you've always been there to be like, no, we can, we're going to do this and we're going to do this episode and let's record. And, and, you know, coming up with the idea itself was just, it was absolutely brilliant. It's been obviously such a pleasure to do it together. And I will miss that. I will miss that time that we have together. But obviously, it's not going to be the end of time that we have together. But in this format, it is. Until the next project. Until the next project. <laughs>